I'm Nick from Bulgaria. I'm some kind of coach and uh, I was thinking about my introduction. So I think uh, the most important thing for one coach is his experience, also his character, but I think his experience is really important. So I uh, tried to calculate how in uh, uh, in numbers what my experience is. So uh, I think I have something like... Uh, 8,000 uh, sessions with clients face-to-face -face and uh, in private uh, private situations and um, about 2,000 uh, sessions uh, with groups or so some kind of uh, CrossFit environment or or uh, team conditioning, teams conditioning. Mm. So, yeah, uh, my whole life and uh, time is occupied with uh, training somebody or thinking about people's problems so uh, yeah I'm interested I'm interested in stretching st uh, strength and all futures of body abilities and so on so uh, that's that's an excellent introduction Nick and I should point out to our listeners too that Nick is actually my current apprentice and I'm very glad that you're <laughs> I'm very glad you're an apprentice Nick and and I had a lovely conversation with my last apprentice whom you know um, Dave Wardman only this morning yeah. And we were thinking back over the seven years that he was my apprentice and what an extraordinary learning experience it was for both of us. I mean, most yes. people think when they think of the apprentice relationship, they think that all the um, learning is going in one direction, but that's complete nonsense. The learning, if the channels of communication are open and both human beings are trying to grow, then the information exchange could be one way, could be another way, could be one way. Um, prioritized a bit for a while it could be another way for a while but I can say in the last year that I was working with Dave I was learning as much from him at least as he was learning from me and I expect that that's what will happen between you and I too uh, and uh, I think that uh, what you just said is important because this is the most valuable for both sides if you don't if um, communication is one side uh, the process is really uh, slower and uh, uh, yeah, the the opportunities is a, a bit less. So oh, much, think, yeah, uh, much more limited. Yeah, much more yeah, limited. Yeah. Well, look, um, we can talk around any topics that emerge in our conversation, but I know you have a few questions you'd like to put to me. So why don't you start yeah. with your first question, and um, and we'll see how we go. Well, do you want to put some kind of structure uh, for our first? Uh, uh, talk uh, because I think uh, uh, this can be helpful for uh, some yeah, listener. I do. Yeah. We can give that list of questions as the structuring format to our talk. We can put make that available uh, where we make yeah, the podcast yeah. available too. So off you go. I'll be quiet and you ask me questions. Yeah, I think this will be helpful. So I think uh, firstly we can start with uh, um, explaining what is the goal of our talks. I think this can be helpful and after that... Uh, uh, we can start uh, uh, talking about some questions okay. uh, because I, I think uh, the bigger framework is if somebody understands the bigger framework, it is helpful for him and he can follow you more uh, more easily throughout the process after it. I agree. So, so I think uh, uh, 
this uh, our talks now will be very beneficial for uh, spreading the knowledge about stretch therapy and its method because I'm I don't know whether I'm the only person with such problem but I really hard uh, it is really hard for me to concentrate uh, to sit and uh, just uh, read through some materials so I have regular books but I think every opportunity that I had to uh, listen to you you speaking is uh, kind of easier for me and I think uh, more helpful in some ways. I agree. Let me interrupt you there because there's something else I think our audience needs to understand and that is that Nick, my correspondent here, has actually taught himself English. He hasn't studied it at (laughs) at university, I don't think. And And I regard this as an absolutely, truly amazing Um, achievement on your part, accomplishment, Nick. It's just an incredible thing. And I have to say, too, that most of the things or many of the things that Nick has listened to in English in order to help himself learn English have been other podcasts that I've done. In fact, the three podcasts I did with my former apprentice, Dave Wardman, are available from our site. They're called The Coffee Shop Conversations. And we... We could, Nick, just regard our conversations here today as the as the logical extension and the logical development of that process. So please ask. Start with question one and put it to me. Or, do you, or did you want me to? Did you want me to talk about what the goals of stretch therapy are in a, a larger uh, sense I first? I think your um, your uh, interview from a few nights ago. Um, uh, I think it is a really uh, nice introduction as well. Justin Goodhart is one yes, interview, yes. and also I did one a few na- a few days ago with a young man in England who teaches hand yeah. balancing. Um, his name is Ben Lowry. Yeah, I think um, um, if somebody wants to start uh, knowing more about um, the whole the whole stretch therapy methodology, or uh, you as a teacher, I think this will be a great resource to start on. Okay, but um, for some kind of uh, quickly. Um, overviewer, I'm not sure how to say it. Mm. Um, would you, uh, because I, t- I, when I uh, thought uh, how to start, I, I uh, review your material uh, that uh, you have published. So, would you like to to tell to the people what uh, uh, nowadays current materials are or products are available from stretch therapy as whole? Okay, well, let me let me answer the first question, which is what are the goals of our work, our joint work? Then my next remark will probably help people to understand the the sometimes discursive way that I have of talking about all things. We could say that the goal of stretch therapy is very simple on on one level. And what we say is the goal of stretch therapy is to achieve grace and ease in the body, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, and cat-like movement. And cat-like movement is our little tagline, as you know, for lots of different reasons. It's, it's cute, everyone understands cats, everyone knows how well they move, and, and for most people the idea of moving their own movement quality from their current state to more cat-like can only be a good thing. But let me talk. But let me talk about the grace and ease aspect first, because what we have found, and, and let me take a step back from that and just explain where this idea came from. We used to be called um, posture and flexibility for reasons I won't go into now. I've written about it in one of my books, but we inherited this name basically from the institution that I was teaching in and studying in, at, called the Australian National University, a wonderful school. 
When I was down in Melbourne once, I stood on a street corner and I'd come up with the name Stretch Therapy and Olivia liked it as well. But I wanted to know whether or not, compared to posture and flexibility, which was the then current name, whether Stretch Therapy would actually mean anything to anyone. So I stood on a street corner in Melbourne and I just stopped 20 people who who didn't look as though they'd mind being interrupted too much. And I said, if I told you I was a practitioner of stretch therapy or I described myself as a stretch therapist, what would that mean to you? And most people said something like, well, I, I guess it would mean that you use stretching exercise or parts of stretching exercises perhaps to help people with their physical problems. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly what we do. And also, too, the, the notion of stretch therapy, for some people the idea of therapy, it, it sounds a bit controlling or a bit, um, a bit too medical, if I can put it that way. But therapeutic, therapeutic has another meaning, too, and that is that it feels good. And for, for me personally, if I'm ever asked to explain the therapy part of stretch therapy, that's what I emphasize, the fact that working with your body in the way that we work with it feels good. The work itself feels good to do, but the most, the biggest payoff is in time, once you have achieved a certain amount of flexibility, you'll find that every moment of existence in your own body is simply more pleasurable and your body will hurt less. Now that's that's actually our normal starting point because... When you go to a CrossFit gym, and you mentioned CrossFit-type group uh, team and group classes before, if you ask people privately, do they have any aches and pains in their body, anyone who's doing any kind of training will then tell you about their shoulder problem or their hip problem or their ankle problem or their thumb problem. Almost yes, and most of them are told this is normal. Yes, exactly. Well, it is normal in, in a statistical sense, and let us clarify yes. a few terms first. Because normal, in the statistical sense, means, and this assumes a a standard distribution, so the classic bell curve that everyone reads about, it assumes a standard distribution, so each end of the curve is roughly the same shape and all that kind of thing, and and normal simply describes the approximately where 70% of any population sit. And, And the example that's always used in the textbooks is the example of height. So... Where we, we might say that in my country, in Australia, and it's probably the same in your country too, the height of an average male average male, is around 5 foot 10 or say 178 centimetres, something like that. And what we mean to say is that the population tends to cluster around a set of values, let's say between um, 5 foot 4 and 6 foot 2, which is let's say centred around this, this notion of of average height five foot ten, but in fact we have people in our, our country who are uh, one meter ninety tall. So I don't know what that is in in feet, and we have people who who are very very short. But the majority of people, so it's that normal distribution. The majority of people sit somewhere in the centre of that population. So that's what we mean by normal. But here's the point. Yes. This this is the key point. Normal is a statistical determination, and normal tells you nothing about whether or not the quality you're discussing is in any way desirable. So, for example, your your remark before about how most people regard their aches and pains as normal is true because most people, that's what they report. Is it desirable? Absolutely not. And so, and so the grace and ease dimension, in, and it's a very simple, it sounds like an extremely simple and extremely modest goal, doesn't it? Just Just grace and ease in the body. But when you actually talk to people about their own experience of living in their own body, 
you find that grace and ease is an extremely rare quality, in fact. Yeah, sure. So that's the the broad thrust, if you like, of stretch therapy, which comprises uh, extremely efficient methods to increase your range of movement, so to become more flexible, that's how most people think about these things. So if we're talking about a, a gymnastics strength training population, we might talk about the capacity to sit in front splits or side splits or do a full back bend or something like that. If we're talking about an office workers population, we're we're much more towards the rehabilitation and what is now called prehab end, meaning we need to condition people's bodies for whatever exercise program or whatever fun program, hobby program, like someone might decide that he or she wants to go mountain climbing or wants to walk long distances or something, or they might say, I want to be able to go kayaking on the weekend. So we, you, a person like you or a person like me, we work with such people. We look at what their fundamental physical qualities are. We look at the goal, which let's say our two goals are mountain climbing or kayaking, and we say, how do we move? How do we take this current body with its current qualities from this state to a state where mountain climbing or kayaking will be something that will be experienced as pleasurable and fun? Yeah, really interesting, and uh, I agree with everything that you said, and I think that most people uh, underestimated the simplicity and also how how big uh, this topic can be. And, yes, um, also I, I would say, sorry to interrupt you, I would say most people underestimate the subtlety of this as yes. well. I mean, grace and ease in the body, when, I, when, when people read that on our website, I know that a stack of people say, look, I'm not interested in grace and ease, I want to be able to do side splits. I mean, you've heard them, you've heard them on workshops say that. Yes. And you know, it just makes me laugh. Because unless you're actually comfortable in your body, unless you've gone past the point of fighting with your own body, which is most people's relationship with their body, in fact, let me just talk about that for a moment briefly. Most people actually regard their physical structure as some kind of impediment to what it is that their will wants to do. So supposing, yes. you're, supposing you're an Olympic lifter or that's your hobby or, your, or your, your sport and you're a beginning Olympic lifter and let's say you're reasonably strong. Most people go into Olympic lifting because they're reasonably strong. In fact, they should be going into Olympic lifting if they're quick, but that's, an, again, another topic yes. of conversation. So let's say they gravitate towards Olympic lifting and straight away when they start squatting or they start cleaning or they start snatching, they want to do more. That's what the mind does. The mind gets into the, the process of becoming the person you're in the process of becoming. And that's also something else to mention is that we can't stop ourselves becoming anything. We're, the human being, the thing that we call a human being, is an endlessly evolving process. It, it's not fixed in any way at all. I mean, you might say well, today I weigh 95 kilograms and I can be pretty sure I'm going to weigh 95 kilograms tomorrow. And in that sense, there is a certain constancy and a certain consistency in the body. But as you know, it might be possible to diet yourself down to 65 kilograms and it might be possible to bulk yourself up to 110. Um, yes. and, and so it, 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 the question always is, is the, is the identity of that person actually persisting over time? I mean, is a, is a 65 kilogram version of me the same as a 110 kilogram version of me? And of course the answer is no, but it's still me. So anyway, yes. get, getting back to it, what we have found in our work is that once people become involved in something like gymnastic strength training or any kind of activity at all, 
the mind always wants to be able to do the activity better or faster or harder or whatever is appropriate in the actual activity we're talking about. And often, and this is the reason why people injure themselves often, the mind actually takes control of the process rather than the mind finding out what the body wants and what the body's own speed of change is. And for some things, the body's preferred speed of change is much slower than what the mind wants. And if that is the case and the mind still forces the whole program, then injuries are definitely in your future. And so part of what we teach in stretch therapy is how to open useful dialogue between what the mind thinks it knows and wants and what the body actually thinks and knows. And I need to make this point too because it's not an obvious one. Your body and all the listeners' bodies, your body exists only in the in the constantly unfolding present moment. And so the, the Nick Kushadev of um, 2016 is actually a different person to the Nick Kushadev of 2017 and a different person to Nick Kushadev 218. But we don't normally think of ourselves that way because you have a license number, you have an address that you live at, um, your you, your girlfriend knows you know what I mean. There there yeah, is yeah, there's this sure. belief there's belief that we that we continue to exist and the the subtext of that belief is we continue to exist in pretty much the same form all the time and that is completely not true. So yes. when we're talking about working with the body with something like stretch therapy or something like sophisticated strength training, what we need to do first up is as i said to open the dialogue between what the mind thinks it wants and what the body's own process speeds and rates are and the sooner we can learn the the rate and speed at which the body can work and adapt the better now as you know yourself in strength training the body can adapt incredibly quickly if you if you periodize your training and take regular rest breaks and you use small increases in loads and you eat properly and you rest sufficiently Anyone can increase their strength from their beginning strength 100%, and a lot of people can do a lot more than 100%, as you know. But but almost no one can increase their speed um, by much more than 10% or 15%. Your innate speed, your vertical jump, um, is a very good way of measuring these things. And your flexibility, your flexibility, well, that's a, a very, very interesting question. How much can you increase your flexibility? Well, if your patient and you don't hurt yourself, you will be able to increase your flexibility up to the limit of the skeleton's capacity to be flexible. And that is all the standard positions in dance and gymnastics, like side splits, front splits, full back bend, um, perfect range of movement in the shoulders, and so on and so forth. And of course, you'll feel completely comfortable in a full squat. You'll find a lunge is a, is a, a powerful position to be in, and so on and so on and so on. But for the majority of people... I mean, where we come from in Australia, if I walked into the bowling club next door, which is, you know, mostly middle-aged and older people, and we asked them all to take their shoes off and squat down on the floor, I would say that probably I would be the only one who would be comfortable in a squat position for five or ten minutes. And, and you know, we, yes. on, on workshops, you've seen us do this many times, we'll get down into a squat position and we're in a room full of really fit, um, low-body fat, buff-looking body people, and, you know, a quarter or a third of the group can't even squat down with their feet flat on the floor. And after a minute or two, they can't wait to get out of the position. 
and and yet yes. in in the so-called uncivilized world or the pre pre-industrial world or the third world whatever you know nasty descriptive term people use about these parts of the world let's say everywhere in indonesia everywhere in asia pretty much except the um, very heavily industrialized parts of Asia, any of the agricultural parts of Asia. Um, in fact, I would say, let's think anywhere in India as well, anywhere in Pakistan, Bangladesh, places that that basically have a relatively low um, quantum of technology in their normal lives or who don't spend their time sitting at desks and tables and chairs but rather spend their time on the floor, all those people can squat. There's not a person anywhere in Asia who can't squat down perfectly and when two men or two women meet to talk, if they're outside, they'll squat down, light up a cigarette, and simply squat for half an hour talking about what's going on in the marketplace or what's going on with their neighbours. Complete, in other words, in other words, the squat is a position of rest. And, you know, we make a big deal about this because in the West, for most people, the squat is anything but a position of rest. And the lack of range of movement, the lack of familiarity in one of the body's literally most standard, ordinary, average, unexceptional positions, that is the key to understanding why Western people have so many difficulties with the sorts of things that we want to do. And also, too, of course, why they have so many difficulties in terms of their own experience of their bodies not being graceful or not being pleasant or fun or pleasurable. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, something about uh, difficulties of different positions Oh, right after you you explained uh, the goal of stretch therapy, mm. so I wanted to to say a few things that I think um, um, there are many people that don't have clear uh, clear criteria about what is happening and uh, with their bodies, and uh, they are kind of too disconnected with uh, it. Yes. And I think uh, if uh, one of the uh, benefits of stretch therapy is uh, giving you the notion and experience to evaluate and to understand your body better and to understand where your weaknesses are right now and to how to work with them. And uh, this was the reason that I mentioned uh, stretch therapy products because I think um, uh, you have uh, uh, worked and uh, produced all the necessary tools for uh, somebody that wants to improve uh, their bodies because um, there are a lot of places and uh, resources and authors that uh, speak uh, for example how to improve your squat or your strength or your muscle or how to work on your sides please but I think um, how the, their, um, their method is kind of disconnected for, from your body as a whole and uh, uh, you, you sometimes make some uh, improvement but uh, um, it is not really improvement because uh, you don't consider the whole picture and um, i think this is the biggest the biggest uh, the most um, uh, helpful and uh, most important thing in stretch therapy that you look at uh, the whole body and the whole uh, all aspects of a life and um, um, how how to connect with your body and how to progress into everything and i think this complexity and uh, holistic approach if i can say it in this way is um, really important and Look, I think, Nick, that's, a, that's an absolutely accurate assessment. And I think that the internet and Facebook, social media generally, and a whole range of influences that are currently uh, present in the online world today are contributing to this very strongly. 
For example, if you go onto YouTube and you search for uh, a video with the title "How to Do Side Splits in Two Weeks," you'll you'll get a flavour of the the average standard of understanding. In the case of that particular video, it's a young lady who has perfect side splits, and she basically just shows you her getting into side splits and just says, keep practicing this and you can get there in two weeks. Of course, this is complete nonsense, as we know. And she's a very attractive-looking girl and, and there are lots of hits on her site. Yeah. And th- this is the part of the problem is there has been a, a either deliberate or perhaps it's an unconscious dumbing down of discourse. In fact, politically, everywhere in the world, people don't debate anymore. They don't consider the merits of the opposing speaker's point of view they don't dispassionately consider the merits or whether there, in fact there are positions that might be taken in between the two starting positions which might in fact satisfy more objectives than taking one position or the other. All debate seems to have become, in the last 10 years at least, much more strident and polarised. Now we, we take the opposite direction in our work. We, and I'm speaking here as an ex-professional philosopher, I... I have a master's degree in science and I did postgraduate work, PhD work, uh, funded PhD work um, into an area of logic and other matters that concerned that logic for five years or so at the ANU. And I had an absolutely extraordinary opportunity of having a long time to think about these things and also the opportunities to argue for the particular positions I was putting with many, many, many different people and many clever people too. And basically what happens when you engage in that kind of debate where the objective is not about one person winning the debate or the other person winning the debate, but rather trying to understand the subject material at a deeper level, what happens if you follow that approach which used to be called the old Socratic approach after Socrates? If you really follow that approach, you can end up learning about things that you never dreamed you'd be learning about. And that was my life for, you know, that 12 or so years that I was at university. I had an absolutely dream time there. Well, the 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 experience of learning and working in this area of logic and what we're doing in stretch therapy is there's actually no difference between those things at all. In fact, it was my work in my PhD research, which was mostly about the limits to the scientific knowledge, um, and in particular this area of logic that I was working in. That is to say, what sort of questions can these systems range over usefully, and what sort of questions do these systems have absolutely nothing useful to say at all? Um, it was actually becoming clear about those things that led me to understand, well, there really is a difference between the conceptual schema that the mind comes up with in relation to anything and what the body's actual experience is and what the body's sensations are in the moment of that experience. And I realized that all of the ancient systems that we've heard about, Taoism, Buddhism, their recommendation always is to look within. And it really wasn't until I had done a sufficient number of years of meditation myself, and I should mention I've been meditating for 30 30 plus years now it wasn't until I realized that what we're doing in the process of meditation is we're actually learning we're learning to connect with the hundreds of sensations in the body that are going on at all times and the body the body's language if I can use that term because the body doesn't have a language in the way that we think the mind has a language which in our case is English but the body's language is sensation and feeling 
And in the beginning, when you start to look inside yourself or if you start to work with your body, the mind does not actually understand what the body is trying to tell it. It's a confused, it's a, it's a, there is a disconnect between these two modes of communication. And what we have found is that working with stretching, but equally too, you can work with strengthening exercise if you approach it in the right way. Um, in fact, you could approach uh, any kind of physical practice with this in mind. If your intention is actually to understand the meaning of what the body's feelings and sensations are as you work with it, there's there's gold to be mined there of a sort that can't be learned anywhere and definitely can't be taught from one person to another. You can only show people how to do that work with themselves, with their own body and with their own mind. And that we have found this to be one of the most unexpectedly joyful aspects of the whole stretch therapy thing. That is to say, watching people suddenly, it's like watching the lights come on, People are working with something that they think they know. Everyone thinks they know their body. I mean, if you ask, if you were to stand on another street corner and say, do you think you're understanding what's going on inside your own body? Or can you feel what's going on inside your own body? Probably a better way of questioning it. People would say, yeah, of course, I can feel that. But in fact, the, the, the bandwidth of that channel of communication is so narrow and the meaning of the sensations is so diffuse it may as well be no connection at all, apart from, you know, okay, I step on a nail, it hurts, I remove my foot from the sharp object sort of thing. That's a reflex. That stuff's built into the body. What I'm talking about is orders of magnitude more subtle and complex than that, and also much, 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 much more enjoyable than people think. That's something that we never really talk about in our work, and that is the sheer pleasure of being alive that comes about when the mind and the body are actually more or less occupying the same space. As I said before, for most people their bodies are experienced often as an impediment or they get sick and then the body is just breaking down or they want to be able to squat 150 and they can only do 120 and they hurt their knees and then they think, oh, go, maybe I just don't have the right genetics for this activity and on and on and on it goes. Instead of asking the body what speed, what intensity does it need to work at? Yeah, I think this is uh, very difficult to sometimes understand where is the problem and whether you have to push harder or mm. to to just let it aware yes. and start from completely different places. Well, you actually places. that that's a good point to jump back to because you mentioned that we we didn't actually use this expression, but when we start to work with someone new, let's say. I'm not a personal trainer, but I I run a clinic also for the same number of years I've been working um, since I got back from Japan, so let's say that's 30-something years as well. We don't have a screen, a, a movement screen as such. The exercises that we choose to work with the person who comes into the clinic with are normally suggested by their goals. So let's say we go back to the mountain climber or the kayaker. If someone says, I want to be able to kayak, um, and you say, okay, well, let, let's see how long you can hang from a bar for, and you, you find they can, they jump up onto a chin-up bar and they can hang there for 10 seconds before suddenly their hands unpeel off the bar, well, you can be pretty sure that they're not going to be strong enough or have enough muscular endurance to be able to do that, that activity. So straight away you can say, okay, well, this little activity here that we're doing, hanging from the bar, it itself, by itself, is a fantastically effective grip strength 
exercise. Um, it also happens to be a beautiful scapula and spine aligning exercise, and it has many other virtues as well. So right away, from the very first exercise that we've tried with this person, we can say it would be helpful for you to hang, try to work up to five minutes of hanging um, and do that practice once or twice a week, let's say. But then we go on from there. There are literally hundreds of thousands of positions the body can be put into, let us say. But what we do is, based on the person's stated goals, or it might just be that they want to get rid of their back pain, whatever it is, that's where you start. And for us, in our system, every what what is normally called exercise, but every position or every movement or every transition from one position to another is for us diagnosis and potential treatment. And you've heard yes. me talk about this before. This is this is <coughs> profound because we don't have a movement screening process where we get people to step up onto a, a step and then we get them to step down and we get them to do something else and something else and something else and we stand there in a white coat and a stethoscope and at the end of the one hour of screening we some we feed that into a computer and we come out with the program that that person needs. No, it is a much, much, much simpler process than that. We will say squat down. So... Everyone squats down, those that can squat. That exercise is not any kind of a challenge for them. And so the diagnostic dimension of that would be you don't need to squat. You can already squat, so just make sure you squat a few times a week. But for the people that struggle with that, we look and see where the limitation is. And we see, ah, this person, their ankles aren't flexible enough to put their heels on the ground, and so they're falling over backwards. Or this person, their quadriceps and their calf muscles and their hamstrings are so tight the knee joint can't close enough to get into a deep squat position or this other person their lower back muscles will simply not let the lower back straighten and and, uh, flex slightly and so they also feel like they're going to fall back so they get down into what is only a half squat position so for us every one of those we call them challenges we call them positions or movements or tasks Each one of those, if you can see how that person's body is struggling with that challenge in the moment, that will tell you exactly the direction you need to go in. And that's what what you do, isn't it? That's what you do in your work. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think this is a way more... mm. Uh, way b- uh, better way to understand uh, and to work with the body because mm, I, in my practice I have I, a lot of uh, clients come to me because they try it with conventional medicine and with screening with MRI and uh, uh, trying with anti-inflammatory uh, pills and uh, some kind of uh, traditional rehabilitation that mm. uh, they don't uh, achieve anything so well uh, let, let, let movement, me movement approach is really better it, it is better sorry to interrupt you there but just uh, you yeah. just just used a word that we need to really explore the word rehabilitation is an extremely problematic concept um, everywhere in the west and and yeah. i'm and i'm sure in bulgaria you follow exactly the same protocols as we do and and the insurance companies are actually the ones who set this and this is also a matter of legislation in my country i mean there are laws about this kind of thing. But here, this is the insanity of the idea of rehabilitation. Just listen to this. In my country, rehabilitation is returning the patient to the pre-injury state of fitness. Mm. Now, the insanity of that is that was exactly the state of fitness that got them hurt in the first place. How how can that be rehabilitation? Rehabilitation has to be taking the person from their current state, whatever that is, injured through to 
um, strong but not coordinated or whatever it is that the person is, is presenting to you in that moment and moving them through a series of processes which will eventually allow them to do whatever it is that they need to do in their normal daily life without injuring themselves. I, yes. I find this idea just... It's, it's a kind of institutionalized insanity, frankly. But every doctor that you talk to, every physiotherapist, every rehab provider will tell you that's what rehabilitation means. And no one, no one in these organizations seems to see the stupidity of it. It's incredible to me. Anyway, so we don't do that. We are trying, we will try to find out what it is that you need to do in your normal daily life. And and, and as and I just use an example only just to get the conversation going of someone who comes to you and says, I want to become a mountain climber or I want to be a, a kayaker. It could also be someone who's um, an IT specialist at work who spends about 12 hours a day behind a computer who says, look, my neck is so stiff and sore um, and when I get home at night I, can, I, I have to have a couple of drinks or I have to take a Valium or something I have to, because otherwise my neck will just... It, look, it feels like it's just about to go into spasm and if I turn my head to look over my right shoulder trying to back the car out of the driveway, you know, I'm never sure whether I'm actually going to be able to do that on any given day. Well, if, yes. if that's what the person identifies as their problem, then at the very minimum... That's what we need to be able to help them overcome. And then, once we have done that, once we've gone past that obvious problem, so the person can actually turn their head in both directions, and now when they come home at night, they don't actually need to have three whiskeys in order just to you know, feel comfortable in their own bodies, then we might say to them, OK, we've been working together for a few weeks now or a few months. The neck problem seems to have gone away. What's next? What do you want to do next? And this is the big question, Nick, and this is the big, big yeah. question for everyone. What do you want? Yeah, More, there are a lot of people that uh, don't think of this question and they just follow the current trend because yes. I had a lot of clients that come to me and they don't know what uh, they want to do. Uh, if somebody is really obese, they would know. Uh, they know that uh, they have to lose some weight. But uh, in other cases, uh, somebody just want to lift weights or to go to the gym because he's quote head healthy. So right. Yeah, I, I think this is not the best way to approach any practice and to achieve some results. So yeah, you have to uh, think more about your vision and your goals. Yes, and, and I agree completely. And I think as therapists, and both of us are therapists, even though you might call yourself a, an elite personal trainer, you're a therapist, really. And as, as a therapist, our goal is to help the person who seeks our assistance become more comfortable in their ordinary daily life. And not just more comfortable as in, I'm going to show you how to relax a bit more, although that can be extremely useful for many people, but rather... What's the word I'm looking for? I won't say optimize themselves because optimize implies that we know what optimum is is for that person. We we don't know what that is for that person. But in the interaction, in the process of working with them, let's say in our example to help the person overcome his neck pain problem, in that process we start to understand the person better and also they start to trust you because they can see that what you're doing is being helpful to them and and it helps them to feel better then that what we call that that communication channel is opened at least a little and then you you can start talking about things in a bit broader context a bit more discursively 
Where do you want to go? Where do you see yourself? What kind of things would you like to be able to do? And and the other aspect of that, which again is in our outcome-oriented world, is not considered sufficiently, and that is we might have a goal today and it might be a guiding principle for the next three months or six months, but then suddenly you realize that actually this is good. I've made some some steps in this direction here, but I want something more now. And so what you do, and this is explicitly part of our method, we say on a regular basis you need to go back and re-specify your goal. And this is a very yeah. useful concept because it, it, it frees things up. We're not locked into anything. And, I mean, you could, you could argue that changing your mind every week is not going to get you going very far in any particular direction, and that is true. If we want to have an outcome, let's say, we'll go back to an earlier example, let's say we've identified front splits as something we want to be able to do, then you're really going to have to commit yourself to working on front splits once a week, probably for the next couple of years or so. No problem. But yeah. that it may be that after you've been working on front splits for a year, you might suddenly realize, you know, front splits is not really going to be all that useful to me in my life, but being able to squat and hang around in a squat position or being able to do um, some bridging exercises or being able to bend my spine backwards to uh, relieve my anxiety or whatever it is, you know, it could be any one of a thousand different movements or patterns of movement that the person suddenly becomes aware that they would like to try or would like to be able to master, then then the that becomes the new goal. And I don't see any problem with that i mean i've had students that have worked with me literally in the case of one woman who was my very first teacher i taught her myself she was my student for 26 or 27 years i think um, and all and all the time all that happened was as she got older she had two children she modeled for one of the books that i wrote three actually now that i think of it she was in all of them um, and her own goals over the period of time of meeting a man who became her husband and then eventually having the first child then the second child then we wrote a book together basically what happened we constantly talked to each other what she identified as what she wanted to do as is the case for everyone if they're honest with themselves changed yearly over those 25 years no problem and we were able to be of assistance to each other over all of that time i just find that wonderful yeah totally well kit i think we um, talk about a few um, conceptual topics mm. do you want to uh, go more into the details now yeah sure yeah i think you mentioned a few times i had uh, something like 10 or 15 questions, but I think uh, uh, it uh, for our first talk, it will be better to just uh, um, stop on the concepts and uh, only uh, because we mentioned squat, I think we yeah. can talk a bit more about it. Okay. So, yeah, I think squat is really uh, basically one of the most important uh, and uh, often uh, lost, unfortunately, movement in uh, people's bodies. Well, I have um, uh, met a lot of authors that uh, speak about internal rotation during, during squat, and I think it is also really um, good to, to, to speak about this and to uh, share your thoughts about internal rotation and um, uh, maybe stretches about it and uh, how uh, lost in, the, uh, in our bodies internal rotation is, keep internal rotation is so... Do you have any thoughts about 
Um, when you say internal rotation, do you mean when someone is trying to squat? And I know the populations you work with, some of these guys and girls are very strong. When you talk about internal rotation, do you mean the phenomenon of the knees coming together when someone comes out of the bottom position in the squat? Well, sometimes uh, opposite movement, uh, like uh, um, external rotation, is limited because of the lack of internal rotation. So, in, yeah. in, indeed. For most people, I'm talking about now, we're talking about trained Olympic lifters. And so whether you're strong on an absolute scale or not so strong, let's assume the person we're talking about has a couple of years or a few years of squatting experience and let's say they can squat well, meaning in the in the Olympic lifting world they can front squat with their bottom right against their heels and they can back squat with their bottom against their heels. So they can go all the way down and they can come up without falling forwards. Let's, let's say yes. they can do that, and, and let's say the, the, the boy that we're talking about has a back squat of 150, let's say, because I know yeah. in Bulgaria you always talk about kilograms, so uh, 150, yes. 150 um, when I say 150, of course I'm talking kilograms, not, not pounds. Um, yes. uh, 150 or 140 is 308, and, uh, and 150 is what? Uh, 320 or something 320 or thereabouts yeah so let's just keep it to to 308 which is two plates or three plates I should say I mean everyone knows that whether you're working with 45 pound plates or whether you're working with 20 kilo plates the bar itself is 20 kilos and you've got three plates on each end Um, you know that's a decent squat if that person if we load that person up to more than they can actually handle right now all people or the vast majority of people will find that their knees will tend to come together momentarily as they lift out of the bottom position of the squat. And the reason that happens is, and you won't read this in anatomy textbook, in the bottom position of the squat, the adductors are also extensors of the hip joint. It's not just the glutes. Um, And in fact, the way we know this is true. If someone hasn't done squats for a while and they go into the gym and they they do a few squats and let's say they do 60 or 80 or 90 kilogram squats, they haven't squatted for a while, where they'll be sore the next day, they'll be sore in the quads for sure, they'll be sore in the glutes for sure, but it is a surprise to most people to feel that they're actually sore in the adductors as well. And the reason is that the adductors are also extensors when the hip is fully flexed. They're powerful extensors, in fact. And so if we want to avoid the knees coming in, because the adductors are not only extending the hips, but they also pull the knees together in that position, then the external rotators have to be able to balance that force. And the way we train that in to our students is we would normally put a band around their knees that we tell them to push out, uh, push the knees outward against the force of the band. It needs to be a reasonably strong band. You know, a red band, for example. I don't know how you classify the bands in Bulgaria, but it needs to be something that is actually hard to press. And we say, keep your knees pressing outwards against the band as you drop down into the bottom position and make sure before you lift out of the bottom position, you press the knees outwards again. And this simply trains the external rotators to counterbalance that adductor movement of the knees inwards. Now, that's that's just in the full squat position itself. But there's a much, much, uh, I think, bigger question here, and that is how much internal rotation would we like to have and how much external rotation would we like to have and why? So let me just talk about that for a moment. In all movements of the body, uh, let's say we're talking about, we are talking about internal and external rotation, 
the capacity to move in one direction is limited exclusively by the capacity of the other muscles that do the opposite movement to lengthen. So, when we're talking about how much internal rotation do we have, what we're really talking about is how much length. What is the available length in the external rotators? Because that's actually what limits your internal rotation for most people. Now, look, I also acknowledge that there's an activation and strength component here too. Um, And certainly since I started working with Emmett, we have been much more interested in activating the muscles that close the end range of joint movements as well as stretching the ones which limit that same movement. When you do both together, you get a, you get a beneficial effect. It's definitely a stronger effect than just stretching the ones that are limiting the movement. I, I'm thinking, for example, of an L-sit, that gymnastics movement off the floor, yes. or whether we're talking about lifting straight legs up to touch your hands holding a bar, that sort of thing. That capacity to exert force when the muscles are getting closer and closer to their fully contracted end of the range of movement. That is definitely a skill that needs to be learned by most people. But there's a synergistic relationship between these things because as, let's use the example of lifting your feet up to touch your hands, if your hamstrings are too tight, you'll never be able to do that movement because as soon as the hip flexors and the abdominal muscles reach, they contract, 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 they lift the legs up and then when you reach the end of your hamstring movement, which of course is what permits flexion at the hip, as soon as the hamstrings experience stretch, what's called the reciprocal inhibition reflex applies and the abdominal muscles and the hip flexors are literally shut off by the brain. And in fact, understanding the reciprocal inhibition reflex is the key to understanding most people's problems in strength training and um, flexibility training. The, The reciprocal inhibition reflex literally constrains what strength and over what range of movement your body can acquire. And so for us, one of the reasons why we say to most people, look, you actually need to stretch your hip flexors or you actually need to stretch your hamstrings, the reason is to be able to activate the opposing muscle group in that part of the range of movement you want them to be able to be activated. This is this is extremely important. So um, in the case of you're hanging from a bar and you're trying to lift your legs up, it doesn't matter how strong you make your hip flexors and your abdominal muscles. As soon as you reach the end of the hamstrings range of movement or the lower back's range of movement, that's when the movement will stop. And most people just yeah. don't understand that. But it's so easy to show. Um, so in, in terms of internal and external rotation, internal rotation movement done on the floor in that exercise we call the figure four, or there's lots of different names for it, When you're sitting with your knees apart, your feet flat on the floor, and your knees are about, let's say, 600 um, millimetres apart, you simply, with trying to keep your, your bottom on the ground, so both sides of the hips on the ground, you let the knee go inward, 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 as far as you can without lifting that outside hip off the floor. And when your knee stops going towards the floor, that's the limit of your external rotators. And those external rotators are piriformis and the other three external rotators. And conversely, when you take your leg out to the side and try and put the outside of your leg on the ground, what limits that in some people is their adductors. Yes. So, that's, I mean, and, and also, too, it needs to be pointed out that that is only in that position. When you're in a different position or the head of the femur is more internally rotated or less internally rotated, 
other muscles actually constrain those two gross movements. So it's not a, not a simple question at all. Mm, not a lot of, pe- of people that work on their internal rotation. And I think um, it is uh, often it is only in limbering situations or so not uh, a lot of uh, contract relax um, method or uh, using some kind of more harder um, uh, stretches, if I co- can call it, it yes. this way. So, yeah, uh, and I think this is this can be a problem because you uh, always emphasize on your knees out during squats and uh, trying to push your knees out. And uh, I think sometimes this is counterproductive. And uh, you, I think, I wanted to, uh, yeah, to hear your uh, thoughts about this because I think uh, we have to. We had to talk um, um, a bit more about opposite movement, as you explained here. So I agree. I agree very strongly with that that claim you just made, Nick. If I'm ever working with a room full of dancers, uh, which I used to do when I was teaching the advanced class at the <clears throat> at the university, we had a standing offer that any visiting performers who were in Canberra and wanted a workout before they went and performed or they were on an off day and just wanted to have a workout, they could come and join us in the advanced class. Um, anyone who can sit in perfect side splits and has perfect external rotation, generally speaking, um, the activities that they have followed for 10, 15, 20 years to become that flexible almost always guarantees that the opposite movement will be limited in some ways. And so, for example, there's a there's a movement uh, called the full, or the, a position, I should say, called the full lotus. You've seen yes. that, that position. Yeah, in meditation. Yes. And, yes, and it, it, it actually is a, a movement that requires a lot of external rotation in the hip joint, but it's in a range of movement that most dancers have never explored. And so that is something that I would play with gently with them, and they would be amazed to find that they had only a beginner's capacity to get into the starting position of a lotus position, even though they're so flexible in so many other ways. And so the the question then becomes, well, is it any advantage for them to learn to do such things? And that is a deep question because for a range of movement that's limited in any individual for whatever reason, the chance of injuring yourself when you try to acquire that missing range of movement, of course, is higher than exploring a range of movement that you already have just by definition. No problem, but it, it has to be acknowledged that that is there. And so we could ask the question, we could play devil's advocate, and we could say, well, what, what use would it be for this dancer to acquire that range of movement? And the, the, there are many different answers to that question. But it, the, the lotus position perhaps is not the best example to give because that actually has a lot of external rotation in it. And the reason why dancers find it so hard to sit in the full lotus position generally, especially male dancers, is that their rectus femoris is extremely tight and that rectus femoris actually can't relax enough to get out of the way of the ankle of the opposite leg crossing that high yes. up on the hip joint. And so you know, the question of whether or not that would be any use for a dancer is a, is a very fair question, and I, I think perhaps not. But there are the internal rotation movement that we were describing before, that is actually useful to a dancer because if the person has poor internal rotation capacity, then the forces that are operating around the hip joints will not be symmetrical. And if we've learned one thing from our work with literally tens of thousands of people over the years working with these different populations, 
um, is that a symmetry of function is a very good predictor of potential for injury. Or, to put it around the other way, if someone's flexibility is symmetrical, and I'll, I'll go through the movements which we normally consider when we're talking about symmetry, and that's probably a, a reasonably good point to end on for today. Um, but the ranges of, or the movements that we consider to be important from a general health perspective are a comparison of hamstring flexibility, not not for the reasons that most people think. It's not actually that important to have really loose hamstrings unless you're a, a dancer or a gymnast or a martial artist, but for an ordinary human being being comfortable in their bodies, if there's a big difference in left and right hamstring range of movement, that is an indicator of deep asymmetry in the hips themselves, and that is a, a potential problem. And I'll, I'll discuss why that is in a moment. I'll just run through the four ranges of movement that we have found to be most useful. We need to have, as close as possible, symmetrical extension in the hip flexors. It doesn't matter whether it's a a large amount in an absolute sense, but the left and right extension need to be similar. Left and right hamstring lengths need to be similar. Left and right lateral flexion of the whole of the spine, including the neck, needs to be similar and left and right rotation of the spine needs to be similar. Uh, how did I find this out, and why do I make this claim? Well, here's the story. I had written the book Overcome Neck and Back Pain. It was my first book, and I wrote it while I was doing my PhD research. But I, even when I wrote that first edition, I, I found I was experiencing a dilemma, and the dilemma was this. On the one hand, I was recommending stretching exercises to help people with their back problems, But I also knew in my advanced class there were people who did have recurring low back pain and neck pain too for that matter who had flexibility which by any conventional standards would test off the scale. So one hamstring might might have 95 degrees of flexion and another hamstring might have 120 let's say. Um, And yet there were people in my other class, the over 40s class, some of whom had very poor flexibility indeed. They certainly couldn't touch their toes, so nowhere near 90 degrees of hamstring flexion. But at the same time, Nick, they had no back problems. And so the the dilemma was, here I am trying to recommend stretching exercises, and yet in my advanced group we've got people who have you know, outstanding flexibility but still have recurring low back pain, and we have these other people that have no flexibility but who don't have the problem. And then one day the penny dropped. I saw that in both groups, the people that did not have problems, as in recurring neck problems or middle back problems or lower back problems, their flexibility, however much or however little flexibility they had, their flexibility was very symmetrical. And every person in the advanced class who had recurring neck or low back pain problems had very asymmetric flexibility. And this was... It just hit me like a bolt of lightning. I realised that asymmetry itself, so big left-right differences on on those four axes I mentioned before, they are incredibly powerful predictors of likelihood of recurrence of problems in the future. And how do I know that? Because this is what happened over the period of time in the earlier years of teaching those same groups of people. I didn't have any kind of agenda for recommending stretching exercises or helping people with back problems because I hadn't had the idea at that point. But I would have people coming up to me after, um, let's say, week seven, eight, nine, or ten, something like that, in a in a stretching course, and they would say to me, "Look, I didn't mention this to you when I enrolled, but I have this back problem, or that neck problem, or this shoulder problem, or some other kind of physical problem." 
um, and they said, I've had it for years and I've been to see you know, this practitioner and that practitioner and no one was able to help. But, but now, suddenly, I find I don't have the problem. And then here's the kicker. They said, do you think that has anything to do with the stretching? Now, of course, now we just we just laugh when we hear that. But believe me, at that time, this was a brand new idea, and it wasn't. It wasn't until I saw the symmetry of function dimension that I realised, yes, it has an immense amount to do with or well, fixing problems in the beginning. But then the extension of that, the further dimension of that, is this is where the grace and ease in the body come from. You can't be experiencing grace and ease in your body if your body's in pain all the time, or you're so worried about throwing your back out that you can't play with your children, or all the other things that people talk about. And so that's what we start with. We start with those fundamental movement patterns we were talking about before, like the full squat, and at some stage in the process we look at those right-left functions to see how different they are. And if we can't find anything that gives us some causal understanding of the person's back problem or neck problem, we say, okay, don't worry about what the cause of it might be. Try to get the functions symmetrical. And this is the next big question. See what happens. No promises. Just see what happens. And it turned out that for the majority of people, if they are able to get their... Um, flexibility, their patterns of movement, symmetrical in those ranges of movement, all sorts of wonderful things do happen, in fact. So yeah. that, I'm, I wonder, is that enough for today to get us going? Um, yeah, what, I think we... it is. Um, there is a lot of helpful information, and I think um, I even think that we can speak next time more in, in terms of uh, achieving symmetry and uh, sharing some practical, practical tips yeah. about it. And definitely, uh, yeah, definitely. Well, and I also too, you could. We didn't. We haven't talked about any of my products, and I'm always a bit shy about talking about products. But what we yeah. can tell people, we can add a link to our forums. Um, yeah. because there's an, yeah. just a staggeringly large amount of useful information there. It's quite well organized. The search function works extremely well. If we were to look up the word asymmetry, for example, on the forums, um, all of the discussions that we've had on this subject would be there for people to read, and it's probably quicker than, than listening to us talk about it. Um, and yes. so when we put this up, we'll add the link to the forums. Membership is free if you want to post yourself. And I, I have no intention of of monetizing as people that lovely American verb. We have no intention of of monetizing the forum or anything like that, uh, because we have God what we've learned ourselves about our work from people interacting on the forums with us about our work is just incalculably important and large to us, and so we'll never do that. And so if people want to um, read a bit more on that between now and the next time we speak, and, and if people have questions that they want to ask themselves, well, I, you know, I'd be very happy to have them post them on the forums and, yeah. we can, and we can talk again in a month's time or something or a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. And we'll do, part, we'll, we'll do part two. Next time probably maybe we can give more uh, practical tips and, absolutely yeah. and also we should we can we can mention now though that if people are looking for practical information all they have to do is search for my name on youtube we have over yeah. over 100 free videos there all of our most important exercises are there and that's something else and this is the last point i'll make today before turning the recording off uh, nick and i are part of an explicitly open learning system it's something that we feel very strongly about 
in other words, we want to get the information out there in people's hands doing good. We we do have pay download programs, and we'll talk about those next time, but they're much more specialised things. The forum is an immense repository. There are over 2,000 members on that forum, and there are over, I think, 15,000 threads on the forum now, and it, it covers a, a huge a huge range of, of of people's interests from from pole dancers talking about how to do you know, splits in midair for, to all the way through to people you know talking about oh, my back is hurting so much I, I can hardly get out of bed in the morning what where should I start we cover everything uh, between those yeah. the two ends of that spectrum and I would ask people simply to spend some time on that and if they if they find something that's interesting there or something that they want to talk about become a member as I said it's free and they can post there and we will definitely respond if it's not me it'll be someone else yeah okay Kit let's I think this is a good place to end so can't wait for our next talk and uh, have a nice day Thank, thank you very much Nick for suggesting that we do this too